Welcome to Teosis Plus. Welcome to the new season. I'm your host, Sergio. And I have with me today my friend Miguel. Miguel is a seminarian in the Anglican Church. Well, he studies in the seminary of the Anglican Church in Spain. As you guys might know, I have a bachelor's in economics with a minor in political philosophy. So today we have a very interesting topic on hand. We have Genesis, the beginning of the Bible. What it's mean, where does it come from, how to understand it. We're not going to be going chapter by chapter where we're going to be talking about chapter 1 to 11 in an overview, example and simplification method that we hope it will bring to you a Christian or non-Christian a new perspective into biblical studies. So let me begin by handing the mic microphone to my friend Miguel. Hello Sergio, I'm very glad to be here with you. Thank you for having me. And I think that um, before we get into Genesis, I think that we should talk about what is the Old Testament. And it's very important to remark that the Old Testament is not an anthology of Hebrew literature. Why? Because usually an anthology compiles epic, lyric, and drama. And sometimes, I would say most of the times, the works are not finished. What we have in the Old Testament is a compilation of books about faith compiled by people of faith for the people of faith. And this is very important to notice, right? So what is the Old Testament among the Jews? We need to make a distinction between how we Christians look at the Bible and how Hebrews look at their own Bible. So in Christianity, the Bible is equally important, equally holy. We could say, though, that we as Christians put a lot of emphasis, even in the liturgy, this has been seen for centuries, for, millenn for millennia, uh, on the Gospels. Why? Because the Gospels have the most important character, that's Jesus, right? Now, with the Hebrews, the first five books, the Torah, the Pentateuch, right, are the most important thing. So in the synagogues, they always will read the Torah. In two, three years, they will finish the reading of the Torah. But the rest of the books, the prophets and what's called the writings, will not always be read. So why is that? Well, if we look at the Old Testament, we can see something very special in the Pentateuch. In the Pentateuch, we have the law, we have the covenant, we have the instruction. We have the revelation of God to Moses and destructions for life. Now, what is the role of a prophet through the Bible? The role of a prophet is not only to see the future and to utter prophecies about the future. The main role of a prophet is to speak the law of God to the people. So what the prophets are doing is to speak the Torah to the people. I'm not saying that the prophecies about the future are not important or anything like that. All I'm saying that the main role of the prophet is to speak the law to the people of God. Uh, on the other writings, for example, Kings, Chronicles, that's holy history. That is a recording of history where we see the intervention of God, the application of the law of God, sometimes the disobedience of the law of God among the people of God. Right? So I think these are the points that we need to stress uh, with a lot of care, right? Because in order to address a Genesis, we need first to understand why the Pentateuch is so important. Now, in the Pentateuch, we have five books. 80% of it is about Moses. So in Exodus 2 until uh, Deuteronomy 34, we have the life of Moses, a biography of Moses. So the most important character, of course, is God. Of course, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are important, and Noah. But Moses is the key figure. And once we understand this, we need to make a distinction between, <coughs> sorry, between Genesis and the other four books. Genesis is very special. And now Sergio is going to introduce you to the critical theory about how we understand the Old Testament and how we can approach what it's called um, not only textual criticism, but literary criticism. 
and I think that now for the audience, they should be uh, very attentive to what Sergio is going to say. But let me finish uh, my intervention with the following. Genesis is about origins. It's quite different from the rest of the whole Bible, not only the Pentateuch. We have something very, very interesting, and that is that we see genealogies a lot in Genesis. We have more genealogies in the Bible, but starting with Exodus, the genealogies only focus on the Hebrew families. They just stop going back to Adam. So that's very important. Now, having said this, I will pass the mic to Sergio so he can explain a little bit about what is called the, document, the documentary hypothesis. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's to begin with, the first word of Genesis is Genesis, which is very common in ancient literature to name a book after the first word. That, so in a beginning, it's a very important way. That's what Genesis means. Yeah, and the documentary criticism, uh, it's divided into two. It's the historical critical method and the sort criticism. It's the idea of putting into perspective the ancient and the modern way of understanding biblical literature in order to focus on what the ancient people would read the documents as and where this information came from. Because it is like reading the Iliad. We cannot read the Iliad in a modern American or a modern English perspective. We have to think like the people in that time period, and we have to look at where the stories originate and where the historical documents and narrations come from. At least for uh, Genesis, you can see a little bit of doublets and repetitions in Genesis 1.27 and 2.7, which is a typological assimilation between various accounts of metaphorical purposes, and this already started occurring early on, counting the importance in itself that the book of Genesis will have for everyone. As we see, there is the main key point, and is that there's four divisions in the source criticism when it comes to Genesis. J for Jawis, sometimes the Y is used, E for Elohis, P for Priestly, and D for Deuteronomies. And the Jawis is stresses the Judah, the leaders, an anthropophic speech about God. God walks and talks to us, and God is Yahweh, and is used in Sinai. Now, the Elohis is a stress or the northern Israel people, and we will talk a little bit of where these documents came from and how it came to be, but this stresses the prophetic, the refined speech about God, God speaking in dreams, and God is Elohim, which is seen in Exodus 3. So the Sinai is Horeb in this one. And then the priestly, as the name suggests, is a strong stress on Judah, on the cultic worship of God, the majestic speak in which God contains and communicates to the world, the the cultic worship of the God of Israel, the God is Elohim, and has genealogies and lists. And the last one is the Deuteronomist, and this is stress on the central shrine, stresses on the fidelity of Jerusalem, speech recalling God's word, moralistic approach, God is Yahweh, and he has a longer sermon. So this is the long four divisions in itself. And there are some arguments in the modern critical studies of biblical sciences in which it tries to look at it in when the, the northern kingdoms, which had an emphasis of Elohim and an emphasis on the prophetic and refined speech of God, and in the Judaic kingdom, had that has stresses on Yahweh rather than Elohim and stresses on the leader and, and uh, anthropomorph uh, anthropomorphic speech of God mixed together into Al Yahweh. So there's some discussions in it. There's a lot of people will argue around 722 before the common era, before Christ, but there's still a little bit of deep debates among theologians and anthropologists and biblical scientists. I think overall, this just gives an overall perspective on the JEPD. And there is, of course, some problems in itself. Um, Miguel is more familiar with the problems in them, so I will let him speak a little bit more about them. Yes, thank you. Uh, beautiful. So let me start uh, by saying that the Old Testament, when it comes to the academical study 
and we apply textual criticism or what it's called forms criticism, it becomes a headache. Why? Well, the Old Testament was written in a time span of some say 1,000 years, others will say another thing. It depends, right? But the thing is that we have a huge time span. We have different authors, and this comes from a place that we are not familiar with. The Gospels might be easier. Why? The Gospels were, well, not the Gospels, the whole New Testament. Uh, the whole New Testament was written in a very tiny time span. What's that? Around, I mean, people will disagree with this, but between 60, 80, 100 years, it depends. But guess what? The New Testament is written in the context of a Greco-Roman culture. Uh, whether we like it or not, we are sons of a Greco-Roman culture. Regardless if, if you live in Australia, regardless if you live in America or in Europe, or, or even in other countries, I mean, it doesn't matter. I'm aware that there are differences and different civilizations, but with so the we say Roman Victor, <laughs> <laughs> maybe so. <laughs> yeah, in some sense. So when it comes to the Old Testament, we have a Mesopotamian context, uh, 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 Egypt, Egyptian context. It's ancient Near East. Uh, there are many civilizations there. There is Ugarit, Assyria. It's quite complex. So. Uh, with this uh, little introduction of why this is uh, complex, I think that the audience can imagine why, right? And by the way, the language uh, that was used is another language. It's Hebrew. Um, the Hebrew language by itself has a lot of complications. And if we start talking about the writings and the linguistics, we could end this podcast maybe in 2030. So we, are, we don't pretend to do so. So what Sergio spoke about is, uh, Sergio talked about is the documentary hypothesis. Now, such a large collection of books will have different tendencies, will have different problems, because sometimes we have parallels in the Bible, repetitions, and you might see some kind of contradiction. So this always uh, was in the heads of the people. And this did not start in the... 19th century or the 17th century this started from the very beginning people were seeing those difference uh we could we could we could say that <clears throat> even we had people like julius africanus who saw problems with the old testament we have theodore of mopsuestia i don't know if i'm pronouncing his name correctly but he saw problems too and those problems were seen as well by the early gnostics regardless of what they believed or, or not. We're not talking about faith right now. We're talking about identifying something that might seem weird, right? Uh, the Muslims in Spain, the Muslim scholars in Spain identified problems. And this went on and on and on until uh, Jan Struck. Jan Struck was a French doctor and a scholar. So he was maybe the first, I say maybe because we cannot always be sure when we talk about past history. But this man um, said, guess what? We have different names for God in different places of the Bible. And here is where we have the problem, right? Because the theory goes like this. I'm simplifying a lot. Maybe in the audience, some people already know this and they're going to say, well, you're simplifying a lot. I think I need to simplify. We need to simplify. Otherwise, people would be lost if that's the first time they listen to this. But basically, it says that so um, the, the J, right? For the times that uh, God, God is addressed with Jehovah, right? Uh, the Eloist, for the times that God is addressed as uh, Elohim. But this is not that easy because sometimes we have the mention of God as Jehovah Elohim or Elohim Jehovah. So what do we do with that? So the scholars call that J-E. Sometimes we have, uh, remember that Sergio gave you a pattern about what the J implies. That could be a kind of tendency of the author, right? Sometimes we don't have uh, the exact uh, tendency that's defined by a scholar. So that becomes J, J1, J2. Sometimes it goes to other letters like 
KXL. It is quite complex. We don't have three scholars who agree on this. And I think that it should be questioned. And it has been questioned. Has been questioned by scholars very, very early since this came around. Now, what about P and D? Because I already spoke about J and E. P attests for the priestly, right? So here in, in the P, we're going to see like tendencies that are very ritualistic, right? Uh, what about the V? The V attests for the Deuteronomist history. This is a quite complex theory because a, this was uttered actually by Martin North, and we cannot get into much detail, but uh, I think everybody that has read um, the Old Testament remembers about uh, book, uh, the Book of Kings. I think it's in the Book of Kings. Pardon me if I get it wrong. King Josiah found the law. So the scholars tend to say that when Josiah found the law, there was like some kind of rewriting of the Bible. There was some kind of a, some way to address the Old Testament. So people understand that from Deuteronomy, sometimes to uh, Second Kings, you have a tendency, right? You have some kind of super uh, emphasized monotheism in some ways. Again, simplifying a lot. But the point of uh, talking about this issue is that one cannot accept scholarship as it was some kind of magic. Scholars who are critical scholars, some of them are Jews, some of them are atheists, some of them are liberal Christians, they acknowledge that there are problems with this. They acknowledge that they don't have solutions, right? So we need to be very careful because uh, one of the explanations, for example, I will, I will give one explanation of Umberto Casuto, who was a rabbi, a conservative one, when it comes to criticism. Uh, one of his answers was, well, guess what? We have different names because God can be defined in different ways, like the attributes. And especially the difference between Jehovah and Elohim is that Jehovah right, those four letters in Hebrew, uh, well, that's the name of the God of the covenant revealed to Moses. So it's normal because God is presenting himself to the people as a God of the covenant. So this is one of the explanations. There are thousands. I mean, this is one of the most complex topics on biblical science. And again, let me repeat this. We are simply, we're simplifying a lot. At the end, we're going to post some sources or give you the references, but I think that you get the gist of it. So we have scholars trying to uh, trying to discover uh, the problems, try to trying to solve the apparent contradictions that we see in the scripture. They come with theories. Uh, these theories attest for different tendencies, different uh, redactors, so to speak, different editors, and there are answers to these uh, formulation. I think that that might be a fair, simple introduction. I don't know, Sergio, if you want me to talk about anything else on this topic. Uh, loads of cards start cycling. Unmute myself. So very helpful I am, right? Um, no, I mean, overall, I think that's a very simple perspective. I mean, if I could add a little bit, is that on my own time, I'm currently actually writing a paper on the Divine Council, which we'll get to it eventually in another episode, which it's also called the Heavenly Host sometimes by the Roman Catholic Church. And in the understanding of the trinal development is at least in this mindset, God has continued to speak to Israel, either in the Old Covenant or the New Covenant, throughout a period of time. God has never remained silent in itself. So I think that that's just kind of putting it into methodology. And yeah, you talk a little bit about King Josiah and some scholars right, like to refer to this change as the Josiah Reformation. And some others disagree on it if there was a true Reformation or rather there was just a removal of outside sources that were not there before. And itself was not a reformation, but rather a 
continuum in itself. Um, it, I think it's an interesting period of time and we don't have a lot of resources about what truly happened in that era. Um, but I think if you're okay with me, I'd love to talk a little bit of some of the resources that we do have. And that will be the excavations of Ugarit in Syria, which today I believe is Northern Syria called Ras Shamra. Do you want me to talk about that, Miguel? Yeah, I, I think we could talk uh, about this a little bit. And also we need uh, to remind something, regardless of what uh, the form formulations in the scholarship say or whatever, we need to understand something that this is true. And this, I think, can be accepted by people who might be very conservative, people who might be very liberal, right? So the same way that we look at Roman law, uh, Greek writers and so on, in order to understand a little bit better the New Testament, we need to look at the surrounding ambience of the Old Testament writer, writers, right? So I think that we need, and I think, I think it's fair to say, and it's understandable, what the neighboring cultures believed. Because if we know this, we can understand better what Israel is saying in their books. I think this is non-negotiable. <clears throat> I think we need to do this. Otherwise, we're going to have, yes, a context, but the context is going to be from within. We need a context of the outside. We need a context of what the other people are saying next to Israel. And maybe we have some kind of relation. Maybe this relation is a test for a common culture. Maybe this relation attests for, for example, as the book of Genesis, some writings against the common belief of other peoples saying you're wrong, you got that wrong, and we got this right. So I think it's crucial to talk about the different uh, texts surrounding uh, Israel. Yeah I, yeah, I fully agree. I mean, just looking at Christianity, when we talk about early Christianity, that period of 300 years before uh, Constantine legalization of Christianity, we cannot talk about Christianity in itself. We have to acknowledge Roman law. We have to acknowledge Greek culture. We have to acknowledge the environment in which it play and might have adopted some specific way of communication or methodology to speak on Christianity. I mean, this was one of the key uh, points of actually Byzantine historian and Roman Catholic priest, Fa Father Francis Bornick, when he talked about the first economical councils and the first councils of Africa, he made sure to talk about the surrounding cultures of these people, because otherwise we don't get a full picture. We don't get a context in which the picture occurs. I mean, I don't think anyone will disagree that if we wanna talk about Mexico, we might have to talk about the surrounding states of Mexico and what influenced Mexican culture. We cannot talk about Mexico by talking about China 3,000 years ago. It will make no sense. So I fully ag agree with you. And I think what we were mentioning, it was the Ugarit in the near ancient East. And today's modern Syria, uh, there will be almost across Cyprus. Of course, Cyprus was not called Cyprus back then. But it was an, a specific, a very important kingdom. It had about 200 villages and a city of Ugarit as part of the kingdom. But it was one of the centers of trade. It, and if something can tell us about the centers of trade, like looking at Vienna in modern Roman uh, European history, is that the centers of trade are really good at containing information and developing information for other people around them. And the third primary income was between those foreign trades between Mesopotamia, Babylon, and the Egyptian lands, and the, eventually the Akati Empire as well. Uh, I think one of the highlights that we should be making is that about the 1920s, these tablets were discovered called the Ugarit tablets. And when we focus on them, is that they have a relationship of a main god called El. This god was a king of the pantheon, and he itself had a wife named Yachera or Asherah, which you can actually find a context of 
against this goddess in uh, later on the Hebrew Bible in itself. I don't recall correctly off memory in, way, in which text she's implied to talk to in the Hebrew Bible. So if Miguel could help me, if he knows the sources in itself, that's great. But overall yeah. in this, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so the um, the going against these kind of gods, I mean, we have uh, a lot of stuff. Like, for example, in Jeremiah, the Queen of Heaven is criticized. In Jeremiah, there is some criticism of the Queen of Heaven and people of, of offering stuff, offering uh, sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven. In Isaiah, we have something called divine, divine suckling, right? That attests for when a baby is suckling from uh, the breast of the mother. So there is some kind of, um, in, in the prophets especially, uh, some kind of attack to these uh, false gods. So to, especially to these uh, goddess that virtually was uh, around every single culture and we know we know and this is very important to 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 emphasize that the people in israel fell in idolatry we have that in the scripture and we have the criticism of it right i mean we have it everywhere almost uh this does not mean that they had a proto-religion where they believed in a woman goddess this is something that is a little bit presumptuous because what we see in the text is that the people of Israel, the prophets especially, were talking against it. So this is what uh, we were saying just some minutes ago, that there is um, an argument, a discussion against the conception of the gods that they had. And let me add something. Uh, Sergei is talking about Ugarit. We can talk a lot of um, uh, Sumer as well, even of Egypt, right? And I think that uh, later, maybe not today, but we will see what's the the gist of, especially Genesis, because in Genesis you have attacks to a lot of the conceptions of the world uh, of these uh, kind of cultures. So I let you continue, Sergio. Yeah, no worries. And yeah, it's fully agree. I think we do need to make an episode about the Divine Council to explain these historical attachments to other cultures and how other cultures play into this matter. Um, the Divine Council also has a Latin term, imitatio dei, um, which might be more common for conservative uh, theologians in the matter itself. But yeah, in the Ugaric text, on the other hand, we see the reference to a high god named El, which was the highest king god of El, God in itself. And the ranking of God is rather something based on bureaucratic matter. It was reflecting actually the idea that kings in itself will be partially gods, but it tries to play this relationship between uh, cultures and gods in which it reflects the idea of a monarchical or pre-monarchical in its ancient Eastern form, cultural ideology. So we will see that the noble royal blood will almost be a reflection of the pantheon in which they believe, uh, an influence that was very specific. And I bring this up just because I think it's interesting remembering the biblical sources that this is contrary actually to the Israel or the culture of the Hebrews because they don't have a king until later on. They were ruled by judges and tribesmen. So I think it's important to differentiate that early near cultures to them were, were ruled by kings and had this influence of ideology of let's organize our pantheon based on our nobles and royal blood to create a comfort zone and understanding on the matter. But yeah, some of the gods mentioned in these texts are Chamesh, Yare, Rashev, Jam, and Mod, and others are Anad and Baal. And Baal does clearly has a play into the scriptures. So at least we know that by the reference of Baal, that there's some cultural contextual play that Ugarit will have, especially with the Northern Kingdoms. Because as we remember, historically speaking, there's not a United Kingdom yet into the history of the Hebrews until later on. 
And this was one of the very key points made by Lowell Handy in his book, The Appearance of the Pantheon in Judah, and in which he tries to create this uh, modern historical criticism from Jawism to Judaism and how this plays out, which was what Miguel was talking about. These uh, modern views, uh, different scholars have different takes in which it becomes almost like a four-dimension calculus math class with all the names and lettering, which we have to calculate the different linguistics in itself. It becomes very complicated really fast. Another good book on the matter would be Walton Near Eastern Todd, I think is another good reference that we will be putting in the com in the comments, both of the Spotify, iTunes, and the YouTube uh, episode as well. And I, I will say, uh, while well, I'm speaking on the style of the structure of the Divine Council of the Ugarit, that even then there is no us consensus among the scholars. Scholars will disagree. So when we speak anything, just remember there's a thousand other people that are disagreeing with what I'm saying, and there's a thousand other people agreeing with what I'm saying, and a thousand other people only partially agreeing with what I'm saying. So it's important for listeners to understand that just because somebody will bring to you at any point something that involves modern critical biblical studies doesn't mean that they are right just because they can name scholars because just as they can name scholars somebody else can name other scholars that will disagree with the scholars they're naming so let's not lose our faith just because we are presented with some new information or new perspective to digest information i will say but the Ugaritic text in itself, it's an ancient context in which it gives us a perspective of the influence of the gods that we'll have on the northern part of Syria, maybe going, touching itself to modern Lebanon and the Philistine. So there's some contextual play into what it will play in their story of creation. It's very important to denote that the other gods besides Yahweh and Asherah, they are only come based on the sexual relationship between these two gods. So they're not really gods created nihilo, like the Judaic Christian god of Yahweh. They are created god. And even on the matter of the El and Asherah, there is not a lot of historical data to influence that they were created nihilo or that they were created within time in itself. So a very similar concept, which you will later see in other cultures like the Greek pantheons. Overall, the mother each god has a function important to the balance of the cosmos in these religions. And the various deities in itself just were given uh, important notation into the average life. What will their benefit be for the average human? They don't have a function in itself or a cosmological being like the Christian God will do so in a rather in itself while a lot of scholars as I keep saying a thousand times over try to portray some perfect contextual narrative going back and forward I will say it's not fully there I'm not sure if Miguel wants to jump in and speak something about that um, the classifications in itself or talk a little bit more about the matter I think that overall we need to understand now that because this episode we're giving uh, some kind of history of the Old Testament and so on, but we want to talk about Genesis. And what Sergio uh, has said is very important, right? So we see uh, with the Hebrew God, with the Christian God, that we don't see uh, our God having sexual relationships with the goddess. At the same time, we don't see... Um, the creation of humankind, you know, male and female, to be slaves of God. They are priests of God. They are, they have the divine image. And the divine image, for example, it's not only, and again, it's part of it, right? The moral capacity, the intellectual capacity. But when it says the divine image, it reflects at some extent how the images of old kings were presented or built in cities. So the, the humankind becomes uh, some kind of embassy of God, embassy of the, of the divine council. You are a representative of God, right? So on the other hand, for example, uh, the sun, the moon, the stars, 
there is a little bit of controversy with this, but we can say, uh, I think with 100% accuracy, that when we look, for example, at Genesis 1 without getting in Genesis, Genesis 1, the, the, sun and, the sun and the moon are not even mentioned. They are called lights, right? So Yeah, it, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it, just to jump a little bit in there, sorry for inter interruption, is that the only thing created uh, via fiat in Genesis 1 was light. Not the sun, but the light. And it's an it's interesting aspect that you see between Genesis and John for those uh, that are listeners and Christians. That emphasis of light, it's quite an interesting perspective. Why would God only create light via fiat in itself? Everything else is separated. The light is created. Yeah, sorry. So um, what we need to put emphasis again, and, and that's a beautiful parallel that you made, because uh, I think that when we go uh, farther, people will see the importance of understanding Genesis when it comes to reading the Gospels. Very, very important, right? I mean, you even have in the Church Fathers like this parallel about the Sabbath and, and Sunday, uh, and they saying that, you know, that on the Sabbath, Jesus rested because he was in the sepulcher, in the tomb, right? Making a parallel with the first week of creation by God the Father in Genesis, and then like some kind of new creation of Jesus in the Gospels, right? So Genesis is very important, but what we were saying is that every single people on earth has some kind of history about how they came to be. What is the purpose? Uh, what happened? What's going on? How evil started? So Genesis is important because even if we see parallels with other cultures and other peoples, we need to be very aware and not to not to fall in the trap uh, about saying, well, you know, well, they are taking these kind of uh, mythologies and they are creating their own mythology. Well, there is part of using other sources, but at the same time, there is a brutal difference between the origins in the Hebrew Bible and the origins Sumer, Ugarit, Egypt has nothing to do. There are a lot of parallels, but especially the moral and the method of how things came to be and how things were ordered and how evil came, it's quite different. We don't have uh, God the Father having a goddess. We don't have God the Father fighting with a brother or anything like that. So this has to be emphasized, and I think uh, all the way, you know, because otherwise we can see some video in YouTube or some kind of commentary by some, uh, even some scholars uh, who will say, well, you know, the Hebrews just compiled all the mythologies and made their own kind of meal. That's not what happened. Like the origins, the book of the origins is an argument against the conceptions that other people had about how things came to be. One of the relevant ones, and this is a spicy, a lot of people now talk about it, and it's very famous, that uh, passage of Genesis 6 and the fallen angels, and then we have the giants and so on and so forth. We have parallels with this. Yeah, we have it, but guess what? For example, the Akpalu, that could be that those gods in the Assyrian or Akkadian culture, uh, yeah, the Akkadians, so those were presented as good guys who brought knowledge, who cared for the people. They were presented as the good guys. So Genesis 6 is not presenting them as good guys. Again, I know that some people will say those were not angels, those, those were like kings or the offspring of Seth and the offspring of Cain. Scholarship nowadays uh, give us enough evidence to, to exegete the passages reading angels. But let's say those are angels for a second, okay, without getting into debates. Well, what Genesis 6 is doing is saying these guys were the bad guys. So this is not a copycat of the other um, history or mythology, if you want to call it like that, I don't like the term. But again, 
we are seeing that the Hebrew Bible is contradicting the neighboring culture. And when we understand this, we can go with a little, a little bit more of confidence to the text and say, well, yeah, there are those parallels, but what's going on is that they are telling the story in a right way, right? For example, I think everybody remembers the Gospel of Luke. When I mean the Gospel of Luke, I mean Luke and Acts, right? And Luke says, there have been a lot of stories about Jesus, but Theophilus, let me tell you what's going, what, what's going on for real. Let me tell you the true story. So this is a little bit what happened with Genesis. Genesis is saying, hey guys, let me tell you the true story. You heard a lot of things, but let me tell you what's, what's going on. I think this is like, again, very simple reviews, but those are the examples that we need to put forward that you may understand what's going on with the book of origins. I don't know if you want to add something else to that, Sergio. Yeah, I, I mean, you're perfectly covering, you're covering overall the entire matter of the truth. I think it's specific gonna emerge to the aspect. The Genesis in itself is like I was stating before, it's so important about separation. In, in, in itself, it's almost telling the Hebrews to separate themselves from error to become the light of the world. And I think that just comes into play understanding New uh, Testament exegesis and a little bit of work that the new light of the world will technically be a reference, at least into the Christian mind, not into the Jewish mind, but the Christian mind of Jesus. And I think that's an interesting perspective. And there's no reason why we should believe into the aspect that the Hebrews in itself got truth, got the entire matter of truth in one day. If we at least as modern scholars to a certain degree believes in the basis of development of doctrine and this is very different from development uh, evolution of doctrine but rather it, development of doctrine is seen on the church fathers why will the hebrew fathers not have the same significant mind and aspect of ideology in their own sense of culture um i think there is something to attest of that matter as well as well sorry i Thing that a little bit in which we speak and which it was seen in the early church on this matter, it's a cosmological argument for the liturgy. We should not just understand Genesis after, as a creation story, but we should understand Genesis as the beginning of the liturgical worship, the internal worship and relationship between us as humans towards God. Uh, and this is what uh, you were talking about, becoming participants in the divine na nature, which it reminds to us in 2 Peter 1, 4. It's strongly existing right there. And the Apostle Barnabas, in his letter, it speaks about the eighth day of creation, the day of the new light, which refers to the day of worship of Sunday for Christians because of the resurrection. It all again come into play into this ideology of separation. The separation is pronounced for those that refuse the merge of the light, but it isn't created. It's something interesting. It's something matter of fiat. Um, and I mean, even between some of the scholars and even some of the random people that love to speak about theology online, that sometimes like to bring, but the, but a few Hebrews did have a wife or Yahweh, which was Asherah that some of people like to argue. They always like to forget that this appointment of circumstances occurred within the northern country of um, the northern countries. So it could very, very likely that at one point, yeah, the, some of the Hebrews ended in committing idolatry, which we know it happened even in scripture. And it was a pain on the bad for the prophets because if something can be said about the Hebrews, and something can be said about modern Christians is that we side at listening to God. And that's hands down the truth because we are very prideful many of the times. So I think that on overall mother Genesis should be understood as a beginning of the liturgical worship in which the preparation of the prayers begin by God himself in preparing what we will be considering the eternal relationship with the uh, 
in essence that he himself is making us partakers of it, it's itself a gift of god uh, both like grace is a gift of god the creation itself is a gift of god god creates creation not because we deserve of it not because we're worthy of it but because he himself is the essence of true love a mother of love agapia which cannot even be grasped by modern scholars, by past scholars, and no one will ever fully understand Agapia in the sense during this world. Our physical boundaries in itself will become a problem for us to understand it. God in himself goes beyond the metaphysical world and already speaking metaphysically will give anyone a headache and not a good kinds of headaches, you know? But yeah, um, I mean, overall, I think that when we understand Genesis, we are not understanding a literal account of creation. And this is my opinion. If anyone disagrees, feel free to let me know. I would love to know why you guys disagree. But even among the church fathers, even among the Jewish rabbis, like Rabbi Moses, I believe in the 16th century, and Rabbi Ezra, I don't remember which century he's from nor I remember his last name, but there's already some disagreements even across schools, rabbinic Judaism, uh, Christianity, early Christianity, early Judaism. There's some disagreements. What we're looking at Genesis is the aspect of the relationship of God towards us. And I think that's what makes Genesis probably my favorite book of the Bible, because we're reminded a thousand times that God creates light and he separates everything else so the light may triumph he creates this method of redemption for the light that he created not because the light cannot exist by itself but because he wishes everything to separate it to be illuminated and i think that's very poetic very anthropophonic gosh sometimes i hate english i wish it was easier um, but it, then itself, it's just a very, very, how will I put it? Matter of the notion of God, not as a master and a slave with us, but as a father with, that has children and wishes every single child to become the best version of them, not because he wants them to be in itself perfect, but because he wants them to understand love. I think this is a key distinction that we should begin to analyze in the early chapters of Genesis and throughout the entire Bible in itself. And I feel that perhaps not even in, uh, between the difference between Jewish uh, theology and Christian theology or even Islamic theology, there will be a disagreement with that statement. Do you have anything else to add, Miguel? Uh, yes, I would like to talk a little bit about Genesis per se, right? Because uh, Genesis, we can divide Genesis between the chapters 1 through 11 and then 12 until the end. Uh, why, why do we do this division? Well, Genesis 1 through 11 is the preparation. It's like it tells us what God did, what was good, what the purpose of mankind was how evil came into the world, how evil accelerated itself. We have, for example, again, Genesis 6, regardless of the interpretation or uh, the debate here, the Tower of Babel as well. So we have a collective history of humankind uh, with a moral pattern telling us what was going on. Then in Genesis 12, we see Abram that was called. And with Abram, we can say that history starts there is a difference right with abram we're starting to see god working through this man having said all what he had to say in his word meaning all the process of the origins and what was going on how the things were messed so to speak and then we start having the history of the patriarchs now the history of the patriarchs uh, serves to explain us the the background of Israel, right? That's why we see all the time Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. We see that a lot of times in, in the scripture. And by the way, with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, we need to understand that more people came from Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Abram had 
Ishmael as well, right? Abram married another wife called Keturah. Uh, his nephew Lot, from his nephew Lot, the Moabites, uh, came came from him, right? So this is something that it's con it's it's a continuation. We, we are having like this serves to put Israel in context, right? This serves to put Israel in context with the different people, the different problems that they had with other people. You know, we remember Jacob against Esau and so on and so forth. So we have Genesis 1, to, 1 through 11, meaning the history of the origins, what was going on, the purpose, evil, etc., etc. Then we have the history of the patriarchs. We have precise people, having conflicts with other people, other, and, and how can I put this? So Genesis are like a collection of writings that give birth to Israel. We can put Moses in context. If you read Exodus, what uh, Exodus is doing is a continuation of Genesis. I mean, there is some kind of genealogy in Exodus, and it's going back to Genesis 46. So people need to understand this, right? So the first part of Genesis give us the background and the purpose of the whole humanity. And then from Abram onwards, we have the preparation to receive Moses, who could be, so to speak, the real hero, the Kaiser, the liberator the one who takes the people out of Egypt, right? And if we can understand this, we will give a lot of value to the book of Genesis. And we will understand how important it is, especially for reading the Gospels and even reading Paul. I want to remind you something. As I said at the beginning, right? Uh, the genealogies of humankind and in Genesis. Then from Exodus onwards, we have a Hebrew family, so to speak. But the place where genealogies end for real in the whole Bible are the Gospels. With Jesus, there is no more genealogies. It's over. So we need to understand those parallels and we need to understand uh, how important this is and we cannot be tired to repeat this again if people understand genesis you i i need i need words to express uh my thought better but i would say this genesis is the key to understand the whole bible period that's what i could say i'm not saying that the other books of the bible are less important all i'm saying that Genesis is the key. If you understand Genesis, you will be able to follow all the events and the theology behind, behind everything that you see mentioned in the scripture, whether it's Old Testament, the rest of the Old Testament, or New Testament. That's what I would say. Yeah, definitely. Genesis, the book of the beginning, just like any story. Unless you read the beginning, you're not going to understand what the heck happened in the end. And uh, yeah, fully agreeing with you, Miguel. I think what you're speaking, what you were saying today is just, you know, it's just a good Italian dinner. That's how we will compare it. A good Italian dinner with a good red wine from the southern Spaniard countries of Cordoba. What do you say? Well, that sounds good enough to you. <laughs> but I, say, I say that sounds cool. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah, no, fully, fully agreeing. When we understand Genesis, we don't understand, we should not understand Genesis through a modern perspective. I don't know how many times we can say this, but we should keep saying it because it seems that every day I go to any social media app, call it Instagram, call it Facebook, call it TikTok. I Thing, a lot of American Christians, and this is whom I interact the most with, so I cannot speak on other matters, don't understand this. And they try to understand every single book of the Bible in the American context. Genesis specifically, it's such an old narration that it will just be problematic. I mean, if we try to understand the matter of a talking snake on such perspective, it will just become a headache. But yeah, I mean, overall, I think... 
we cover quite a lot. I specifically don't have anything else to cover on Genesis. Oversimplification, do you have anything else which we should talk about? Yeah, I would like to say something. If you think that Genesis is modern history, then I invite you to pick the book of First Maccabees and compare it to Genesis. You tell me if that's not different. Yeah, I mean, me I, different. I mean, after all, we both know Miguel Genesis happens in Mars, right? <laughs> yeah, to some extent. Uh, again, but uh, we would say that if somebody wants to read Genesis super literal and so on and so forth, well, no, there is no opposition. But what we're trying to do is to explain that it has a context, it's a very ancient context, and it would be good for everyone to understand uh, the purpose behind Genesis. We will see in, in, in other series, uh, chapter by chapter, and we will see what's going on. And I think people will realize the value of approaching the Bible with a critical mindset. Now, having said this, we already said that we are not in agreement with the theories of different editors, as the scholars say, and this is like the truth, and this was compiled and then edited, and other people uh, edited the text for some kind of um, political or theological purpose. That is some of it. That is some of it. But we're not accepting the mainstream uh, liberal criticism, and this is why we are not doing this, because I, I will say something that might help people to understand a lot what's going on. Well, Hausen was a very renowned scholar, and he's one of the fathers of the documentary hypothesis, Graf Wellhausen. Those are two guys. He used Hegelian methods to understand what was going on. He understood that the thesis was the pre-prophetic faith, and the thesis was the prophetic monarchic faith. So he put them to fight. He put them in contradiction in order to get a synthesis. So again, we're not looking at these as uh, secular uh, scholars or secular students. I mean, we are students. We, we use the word the scholars, meaning as, uh, in a scholarship, addressing things in, academic, in an academical way. But we are using the tools in order to explore the Christian text, because we need we need not uh, we, we need to to understand and and please do not forget the Old Testament is a Christian book as well, right? It does not belong to the Hebrews alone; it belongs to us. Those are our forefathers as well. So we are using the tools of the critical approach to the Bible in order to understand better. Yes. There are places where you see like some differences, like Genesis 1 versus Genesis 2. There is like some kind of apparent contradiction that can be solved, of course. Then we see, for example, Genesis 5.1 seems like it cuts the narration from Genesis 4 and it goes back to genealogies. And again, we will use the critical approach to explain things as Christians, right? I said in the beginning. Those are books of faith compiled by people of faith for the people of faith. We are not espousing a total secular criticism of the scripture. We are using the tools of the historical critical method in order to understand better the gospel. Because the gospel is something that is related to the Old Testament. It is the fulfillment of scripture, meaning the Old Testament. And I think... Uh, that should be something that the audience should remember. And I wanted to clarify that. That would be my take. Yeah, and I fully agree with you. Just like sometimes even Hegel can be used in, in philosophy, in so can Kant, doesn't mean we got to agree with them 100% and use them 24-7. I think with this, feel free to leave your questions on the comments. Feel free to reach to us. You can find my page on Instagram, Theosis Plus, and you can leave comments, concerns there. And just remember, above all, have faith. Theology in itself, we're all like beggars, begging for bread and telling each other how is the best way to beg. So we're all, as a students, imperfect. And we're not scholars, but even the scholars are imperfect. 
And we, Miguel and I, will at least admit that we don't know everything as much as we wish we could. But again, I don't want to have the headache of knowing everything. <laughs> well, Miguel, it was a pleasure having you here today on the podcast. It was a pleasure, like, always talking to you about biblical studies. And it's a pleasure always talking about theology yeah, and philosophy, even though I know that you, sometimes you said that gives you a little bit of a headache. <laughs> yeah, thank you. My field is more biblical studies, but uh, I think that biblical studies is a tool to understand better theology. And as you said, we are not a scholars, we are students. And we, we, we say to the people, we, we say like, yo, go and read by yourself a study. We don't speak in the name of any church, right? We are just trying to use uh, uh, tools in order to enhance uh, the knowledge of Scripture. And what can I say? It's been a pleasure being here. Thank you for having me. And I had a great time. I hope we can have like uh, the next episode and we can get more down to business. I think people will be more excited when we might go chapter per chapter explaining what's going on. Yeah, and for the people that are still around, let me just explain you a little bit. This season will be a little bit more focused on Genesis as me and Miguel will already talk about it. So expect uh, the next episode, we are most likely going to be talking about the Divine Council in Genesis 1. So if you want to know more about it, stick around, subscribe, give it a like, tell us what we're wrong. Just don't call us heretics. It's all I'm asking. Take care. God bless and have a wonderful day.